You're listening to McBee Care Threads, a podcast where leaders across the healthcare industry can learn from each other. We'll discuss stories and explore strategies to help providers deliver value-based care and hear your peers share their best practices for success. Let's get into the show. Welcome, everybody, to our episode of McBee Care Threads in our podcast series. My name is Mike Dordick. I'm the president of McBee, and I'm thrilled to have Jason Banks, who's a vice president of post-acute with me at NetSmart, um, a colleague that he and I go back and forth on a lot of issues. And one of the issues that we tend to dialogue a lot about is what's going on with hospice and palliative care across the country. So uh, let me uh, let Jason introduce ourselves, and then we'll jump right in. Yeah, thanks, Mike, um, and thanks for taking time out to speak today. So uh, as Mike said, my name's Jason Banks, Vice President of Post-Acute at NetSmart. i uh, been back with NetSmart, fortunately, for about nine months. I was here about uh, three years ago, and in between that time, served as the Executive Director of Seasons Hospice and Palliative Care in Chicago, where I was able to serve a team of about 250 care team members, and we served about 500 or so hospice patients, 1,200 palliative care patients in about nine counties in and around Chicagoland area. Our particular location had four hospice inpatient units, one freestanding, three in hospitals, two palliative care clinics. And again, I served in that role for about uh, two and a half years. I was previously you know, mostly in the technology side on the uh, of, of hospice and palliative care for the better part of, of 15 years. And and uh, what a great experience it was to serve the men and women that serve patients and families on the provider side for uh, for the past two and a half years. Yeah, thanks, Jason. I, I always find it interesting as I talk to Jason and him, him being on the software side and then have, having gone out and spent so much time on the in a provider setting and, and coming back as we talk and, and work through industry challenges and opportunities overall, I find Jason has a lot of great insight and in why I wanted to have him join today when we talk through this. So where I was going to start, Jason, is let's talk about the top challenges you see in, in hospice and palliative care organizations today. And obviously, we're, we went through a point in time where we had lots of mergers and acquisitions coming through and really saw a lot of significant growth in, in different organizations. And then we had COVID hit and it kind of threw things into a loop. But where do you see with all those different areas, where do you see the top challenges today? Yeah, and obviously, you know, COVID has presented its own unique set of circumstances and challenges and opportunities for hospice and palliative care providers. But I still think that the, the top three areas of opportunity or challenges for hospice and palliative care is still number one, awareness, right? There's still a, uh, a broad-based education that needs to occur out in the community of hospice and palliative care. I still don't believe that the vast majority of the population understands the benefits, the true benefits that are provided by hospice and palliative care providers across the country and how that manifests itself in, in many hospice and palliative care organi organizations is, uh, you know, shorter length of stays, right? And so if we can increase the awareness and increase the length of stay of those patients and families on both hospice and palliative care, I think we really can do the general population a service. You know, we saw this all the time in hospice caps, where the longer we had to serve a patient and family, 
the better the outcome was, the more predictable the outcome was, and the more satisfied they were with their end-of-life experience. So that would be number one. I think number two, and it, it's been the case for a while, but, but even more so now, is um, what I would categorize as team recruitment and engagement, right? And so we, we see a shortage both in the uh, nursing population, but, but also in other disciplines as well. And so staffing becomes increasingly more important and engagement of those staff becomes really, really important. And so that's a huge opportunity for hospice and palliative care providers is to figure out how to solve for both recruiting and the engagement and retention of these incredible people that that serve others at the end of their life. And then the third is and Mike, there's nobody probably more aware of this than, than you, which is the shift in payment, right? From everything from the SIP innovation through the Patient Cares Act through the Medicare carve-in models, I think that hospice and palliative care is, is really undergoing a transformation brought on by new innovation models and payment models. And I think that that will be a challenge for a number of providers, both in the short, but also in the midterm. Jason, those are those are all great areas, I think, that organizations need to think about when you think about challenges that are taking place. I mean, I'm going to let me hit on one that I think is worth digging into. I mean, obviously, the potential reimbursement changes are out there. We know we've got potential carbon issues. We've got new programs. And you'd think that some of those areas would affect the interest in the space. And what we've seen is the exact opposite, that there's not, the interest is growing, not shrinking, even with all these potential pressures. And as you think through providers and how they grow, and give your thoughts as well on why there's so much interest in the space from both outside entities like uh, private equity and other firms, and also you see the traditional even not-for-profit hospices that are really looking at getting away from just traditional hospice. They're looking at care navigation and population health as well. Well, I, I think, you know, what what's interesting for hospice providers who've been in the space for quite some time, and I had the good fortune of working for really true visionaries in the space and, and being affiliated with others who have been in hospice and palliative care for years is that they've been doing care coordination, care navigation, and going at risk for many, many years, right? So hospice is the one true healthcare service that has really encompassed everything from the care to the medications to the DME, to the supplies. So, you know, really they've been operating hospice and palliative care for years and years under a capitated model. And so they understand being able to manage the entire person. You know, one of the things that's that's interesting is that um, with, uh, with the Medicare uh, carve-in models, I think we're gonna see more and more hospices take on diagnoses and treatments associated with things that may not be the reason for uh, the hospice care or the hospice diagnosis itself. And so, but that's something that hospice and palliative care providers have been doing for many, many years. And I think that's one of the reasons that um, uh, private equities as well as, you know, large hospice uh, providers are taking interest is because, 
you know, hospice and palliative care organizations have been able to figure out how to go at risk, and, and they've done that over the years for things just beyond the care itself and in multiple care settings, right? If you look at hospice as opposed to other healthcare lines of business or service lines, it's the one that crosses multiple venues of care, right? We provide hospice care inside of a hospital. We provide hospice care inside of an inpatient unit. We provide hospice care in senior living. And then, of course, we provide hospice care in the home as well. So it's the one thing that sort of crosses all you know venues and also is really been in a, a capitated model for many many years and so i think that's why we're starting to you know we we have not seen a decrease in the interest in hospice we've actually seen an increase and i think the government and payers have also realized that right which is why they're looking to expand palliative care and hospice. That's what all these programs are about. That's what the Medicare Carvin program's about. That's what the Patient Care Choice Act is all about. It's about expanding access to palliative and hospice medicine across the entire continuum. Yeah, so, and Jason, you bring up some additional great points. So when you think about some of those potential challenges that, that you'd see with, with the way that reimbursement could change, but in the same token, you see groups like Humana doing the big acquisition of, of Kindred and Curo, and you, you see a lot of these payers and other, other unique areas seeing how hospice executives and hospice teams have done such a great job of caring for a patient in an end of life and doing it in a more efficient way than you would see in an acute care hospital. I mean, we see all these studies that show that even though the hospice overall spend is going up, it's still less spend by a by a patient and end of life being on hospice care rather than in acute or skilled nursing or somewhere else that's managing the care. I mean, hospice has proven that they can go through across all these programs and be effective. So with all that that's there, and again, you have all these potential positives that are there as well as some negatives that potentially are there with, with reimbursement. What would, Jason, what would you recommend to, in, when you, if you're an executive of, of running a hospice organization, what would you recommend to them as we get through the end of 2020, heading into 21 with, again, we have lots of uncertainty in the country or in the world right now with COVID, we've got changes in potential reimbursement. What, what, do, you, what do you plan for as an executive running a hospice or a palliative care organization? Well, you know, the first thing that you, you wanna make sure as an executive running a hospice organization is that you have the ability to have analytics at your fingertips, right? You wanna understand your key performance indicators across the entire business and understand what is driving that business, both for internal and external uses. You know, one of the things that was, you know, always an opportunity was the access to data, uh, both internally in, in terms of being able to better run the organization, but also externally with referral partners out in the community and demonstrating that this ultimately is a is a great service with great people serving others. And so that's number one. You, you want to have great analytics as, a, as an executive so that you know and you can demonstrate to your referral sources the great level of care that you're providing. The other thing that I would mention is that I think executives would be well served to have or have a plan for things like workforce management and logistics solutions, right? We talked a little bit at the beginning of this about sort of the staffing shortages 
And those are going to become more and more pronounced throughout 2021. And I'm anticipating that we'll figure out at a bare minimum treatments for COVID, which will, you know, once again, you know, take some of the labor overages out of the market. And so one of the things that as an executive you want to have is the ability to have world-class systems to support the nurses, the doctors, the the, um, uh, social workers, the chaplains, the music therapists, and aides that are providing care in the field every day. And so there's a concept that, that I've talked about for a couple of years now, and it's it's this concept of a patient tax. And and my belief is that, you know, if you have systems that can support things like logistics, then you can decrease things that aren't adding value to the patient care, like driving, like documentation time in the field, like double documenting outside of the EMR. So those are all things that add a tax to the patient care and ultimately don't drive outcomes anyway because you know you, your clinicians didn't go to school for <laughs> to to drive around in a car they went because they have a passion for caring about others at end of life and that's really what they want to do and so the the more time that you can get them spending with the patient and family the better the outcomes and and ultimately it, it's actually better for the business as well and so that's that's number two. And then obviously, we and we've talked about this a number of times, but the payment changes are are going to, you know, you, you want to make sure that your data analytics is supporting you in uh, both, re, uh, you know, reporting out to your referral sources, as well as understanding what your economics looks like in the payment reform model. So you want to make sure that you're able to look at your cost per patient day on everything from your service layer to your DME to your pharmacy and all across the board have that information at your fingertips. So I I think those are the the key areas as an executive as I look out into 2021 that, that I'd want to be able to have a plan for. I mean, great advice, Jason. As I think through, and one 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 thing that popped in my head, I think we wanted to to hit on next is as you go through and, and you talk about an executive running a, a hospice or a palliative care organization. If you're if you're a hospice organization, especially a smaller hospice organization today, and you're just doing one line of business, I mean, and we we talked earlier about population health and other areas that hospices do, but there's still lots of hospices out there that may be listening to this and, and saying, well, I don't I do not do any of those things right now. What would your advice be, Jason, for someone that's just doing traditional hospice in one market as to what, what's their best path to for success going forward? Well, I, I still think some of those, the, really those same things apply, right? Um, in terms of making sure that you have systems that allow you to better manage the team that you have right cutting down on their on their windshield time and and increasing their time with patients and families but i would also you know encourage the executives out there that may be running a single site hospice to figure out unique ways that you can engage your your team i, I think one of the opportunities that i had in in, in running a hospice organization was the ability to find new and unique ways to engage the team. Now that becomes ever increasingly difficult in in today's environment. But again, 
pending we get to some sort of treatment for COVID, everything from, you know, providing a, a lunch and learn day to uh, going out with your teammates in the field to go see patients and families, going and signing up patients and families in hospice and palliative care and being there shoulder to shoulder with your care team makes a world of difference. And, And ultimately, this is a, you know, it's a human services business with incredible people serving in in this uh, in the service line. So I, I just cannot say enough about them. And I think it just it ultimately pays dividends for even those that are just, um, you know, and I shouldn't say just because it's an incredible Herculean task to even provide hospice and palliative care to, you know, 20 patients and families. Right. And so, you know, I think I think engaging your team members and making sure that they feel supported by the executive team will ultimately pay dividends in outcomes and and patient care. And that ultimately, I've said it for many, many years, nothing grows hospice and palliative care census like great care, right? And, And ultimately, supporting your team members is key to providing that care. Again, it's a human services business, and we have incredible people that are dedicated to this. And so, you know, they a lot of times need the support of the executives to, um, you know, to, to continue to provide that, that excellent care that they do. Yeah, I mean, all great points, Jason. One thing I'll add is, as you, I was thinking as you were describing that process, I mean, the other thing that, that you want to be able to leverage, as, as, I think, as a smaller provider especially, is don't be afraid to get together and collaborate with with your other 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 groups, whether it may not be competitors, but the next somebody who doesn't compete with you, especially a couple of not-for-profits. I think some of these scenarios that we would have before leveraging skill set across organizations, whether that's leveraging back office structures or leveraging other areas, is something that is going to be important for everyone to survive. I and mean, I think that there's some level of scale is going to be necessary, especially as payment cuts take place. But I think that ultimately, one thing I, I always love about the home health and hospice industries is that they, there's a lot of collaboration. Anybody I've talked to over the years that's come from other industries, whether it comes out of acute care or healthcare, acute healthcare, or even outside of healthcare in general, always comments when you come into home health and hospice that you really have more of a community where people are willing to share information, even with competitors. And, and again, I'm not saying you should share all your secrets with your competitors. What I'm saying is that if you're a handful of not-for-profits that are in the same state that may have some of the same challenges but don't have overlapping service areas, it may be good to try to collaborate and put some things together with that. So I just wanted to make sure I added to that. Jason, it's getting close to wrapping this this podcast. Any any last thoughts for the audience today? No, I, I would just echo what you said. And and if you know anyone would like help in in sort of collaborating with other hospice and palliative care organizations, I I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that there's there's been excellent collaboration. It's it's one group of the healthcare system that is is widely you know accepting of you know collaborating with one another across the country and and using the technology that we have now to do that makes a lot of sense so i would just echo exactly what you said and and just uh, thank you to those out there that are providing the care on a daily basis just couldn't be more appreciative for uh, for all that you do on a daily basis so thank you 
Okay, great, Jason. Yeah, and I want to thank everyone that again, all these caregivers that are doing all this work for us, not just now during COVID, but overall to taking care of all the patients at end of life. It's it's a critical need, and and hospice caregivers are one of the most caring groups of people I've ever met in my life. So with that, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this uh, episode of McBee Care Threads, and uh, hope everybody can enjoyed it, and hope to talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. At McBee, we understand the challenges providers face across the healthcare landscape. For more than 45 years, we've been a part of the evolution of the healthcare industry. Our strategic advisory solutions span the home health, hospice, health system, and senior living care continuums, creating improved clinical, financial, and operational outcomes. Our expertise is guaranteed. Our solutions empower. Visit us today at mcbeeassociates.com. Thank you for listening to McBee Care Threads. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. For more information on the topics discussed today, visit our website at mcbeeassociates.com. Until next time.